I'd like to welcome everyone to the Friday seminar, or in this case, webinar. And I'm going to say a few words about our guest speaker, whom we're extremely pleased to have sparing his time, despite the best efforts of the train system to keep him away. So Dr. Beglari completed his PhD in history at SOAS in 2020. Before that, he was an MA student at SOAS and had a BA from the University of Cambridge. He's now a research associate and teaching fellow at SOAS. His research focuses on the intersection of energy, environment, infrastructure, and labor, especially, but not only, in the history of Iran and the Middle East. His doctoral thesis, which I should mention, was awarded the very prestigious 2021 Brisness Lee Douglas Memorial Prize for the best PhD dissertation examines the technopolitics of Iranian oil nationalization, especially focusing on expertise, labor, and anti-colonialism in Abadan. His monograph based on this thesis entitled Refining Knowledge, Labor, Politics, and Oil Nationalization in Iran, 1933 to 51, will be published with Edinburgh University Press in 2023. And I very much hope he'll come back and talk to us about that book when that happens. So today, Martin is going to talk to us about the global climate emergency, especially as this impacts Iran. And Martin, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Firstly, thank you very much to the Middle East Centre, to Stephanie, to Michael for your invitation. It's like really great to, to be here virtually and especially be part of this series on the environment that you have in such a pressing time. So I'll just share my screen. Okay, so let me start. So as we witness COP26 struggle to deliver on its promises, we are reminded once again that a major hurdle for tackling climate change remains the refusal of countries in the global north to take responsibility for their historical culpability. And connected to this issue that we see playing out at COP26 is the lack of representation from countries in the global south, with there being numerous complaints that the inaccessibility of the summit has excluded people on the front line of the global environmental crisis. After all, the global south will be disproportionately affected by global warming. This is especially so in the Middle East and North Africa, where climate catastrophe is already too apparent, as evident this year in forest fires in Turkey and Algeria, and the sudden drying up of entire rivers in Khuzestan like the Karun pictured here in Ahvaz. These events make it increasingly difficult to leave the environment as a discrete domain of inquiry, separate from political, social and economic matters. And of course, this is a point that has long been at the heart of subjects like geography and the environmental humanities, but which has been relatively slow to gather pace in Middle East studies until recently. It's relatively easy to see how the events that I just mentioned you know, these instances of environmental crisis may be incorporated in the humanities and social sciences. For example, how the drying up of rivers in Iran this year led to political mobilizations over water scarcity. However, there are still less spectacular environmental issues that are no less urgent, but which have captured less attention, perhaps because of their ubiquity. One of these is air pollution. It's estimated that exposure to air pollution resulting from fossil fuel combustion 
is responsible for more than 10 million premature deaths globally each year. That's more than HIV, TB and malaria combined. And I think there are three main problems in its detection, which perhaps partly explain why it hasn't received more attention, at least in the social sciences and humanities. First, like other forms of pollution, it's often so dispersed that its specific origins and effects can be difficult to pin down. So for example, pollution in one city or in one country may actually emanate from another country or continent altogether. Second, despite its hypervisibility in the form of smog or smoke, its true extent is often invisible and only detectable with special equipment. And it's particulate matter, which is actually most damaging to the lungs, which is microscopic. Third, its damage is often incremental, or what Nixon has called a form of slow violence, taking place over many years. And this applies to both inanimate and animate bodies, and the exact extent and tempo of damage can differ from body to body. Now, as I'm sure many of you will know in the audience, air pollution is a major problem in the region today. Any visitor will attest to its immediate visibility when arriving at major cities like Tehran pictured here. And the effects are quickly felt in the body, especially in the nose and throat. So although there is uncertainty about the exact origins and the effects of air pollution, and although not all embodied experiences of it are gonna be the same, most people exposed will know at least it's causing some harm. And I think this highlights how we need to consider embodied, situated knowledge seriously in being able to detect environmental hazards. Indeed, our bodies are as material as their material environments and might be the first barometer of any environmental transformation. And yet time and time again, we see that such knowledge is marginalized in grand plans for environmental solutions, excluded from a domain of expertise which is based largely on calculating macro-level processes. So why is this the case? Well, without attempting to provide a comprehensive answer to this big question, or trying to present an exceptional case, in the remainder of this talk, I want to offer one intervention by turning attention to air pollution caused by the oil industry in Iran. As a historian, I will do so through a historical lens focusing on pollution as oil became central in political discourse in the years leading up to the country's oil nationalization in 1951. Now, there are lots of studies on oil nationalization, and these largely focus on high politics in Tehran for understandable reasons, especially figures like Mossadegh. But as I argue in a forthcoming book that Stephanie mentioned, we should root this important event in the subaltern experiences of those living and working in the center of Iran's oil operations in Khuzestan, especially the city of Abadan pictured here. This was home to the largest oil refinery in the world at the time, operated by the soon to be expelled Anglo-Iranian oil company, IOC. I think that this more focused history can provide some lessons for how we may tackle environmental crises today. First, like a burgeoning body of work in the environmental and energy humanities shows, it highlights how imperialism has been historically responsible for global pollution in the Middle East and global south more generally. 
Moreover, by understanding how the situation in Abadan was then translated into mainstream political discourse in Tehran, and how Abadan has more generally been marginalized in histories of oil nationalization, we encounter a more fundamental issue about expertise, namely who has the legitimacy to speak and what forms of knowledge are valued over others. I argue that this history not only further demonstrates the importance of situated and embodied knowledge in solutions to environmental challenges today, but also that environmentalism must not be detached from wider issues of social justice, such as workers' rights and infrastructural inequality. So I'll present this history in three parts. First, I'll show how pollution from the refinery was symptomatic of structural inequalities in Abadan. Then I'll shift attention more specifically to disputes between oil workers and the company over toxic exposure in the refinery, showing how these were emblematic of the company's efforts to render workers as political non-expert actors. Finally, I show how Tehrani journalists and politicians then reproduced the separation between politics and technology of oil in mainstream political discourse. And this had important effects on the oil nationalization movement. First, some background. The Anglo-Iranian oil company, or Anglo-Persian as it was initially called, constructed the first processing plant of the Abadan refinery in 1912 to refine crude oil recently found at Masjid Soleiman. Now, as others have highlighted, the construction of such infrastructures depended on dispossessing local populations to secure territory. And this allowed the company to rapidly expand the refinery, which quickly grew to an exceptional size with a large workforce, partly due to its strategic importance in the British Empire. The refinery was a major source of fuel oil, especially for the Royal Navy. This expansion continued during the interwar years to meet rising consumer demand for oil products, and of course, gasoline being one of the main ones at this time. Meanwhile, a large city had emerged around the refinery with its own social and economic life as people migrated from other parts of the country seeking employment. While the company had initially built accommodation adjacent to the refinery for British management and also for skilled artisans from India, the majority of domestic migrants to the city gravitated towards the local bazaar known as Shah or Abadan town. And as scholars like Kaveh Esani and Rasmus Elling show, from the late 1920s, the company sought to control this so-called native town to prevent disease and also ultimately to maintain a disciplined population. And this happened through measures such as urban planning and also the, the provision of municipal infrastructures and leisure facilities. But these measures also resulted in a deeply divided city. So for one, urban life was racially segregated, such that the, there were separate social clubs, transport, sports facilities, and even cinemas for British, Indian, and Iranian workers and their families. In addition, there were deep economic and infrastructural inequalities, especially exacerbated by the British occupation during the Second World War. So to give one concrete example, at this time, while each bungalow in the British management neighborhood of Brame had its own septic tank and was connected to a purified water supply system, in Abadan, in Abadan town that is, 
there was no water latrine system, no electricity, and there were only seven water standpipes. Conditions were even worse in shanty towns like the notorious Kharaz Abad pictured here, which consisted of homes built on mud from scrap metal, which were also subject to sweltering heats in the summer, flooding in winter, and the buildings were also highly flammable. So, for example, in 1949, there was a major fire that destroyed 84 homes. This infrastructural violence in Abadan materialized social divisions along racialized lines, systematically ex exposing a section of the population to death, or what Mbembe calls necropolitics. The necropolitics of Abadan were perhaps best exemplified by pollution. The refinery's location in the middle of a large city meant that the entire population was potentially exposed to noxious gases like carbon monoxide, sulfur dioxide, and nitrogen oxides, which can all gradually cause serious long-term health problems such as cancer, especially in hot temperatures like in Abadan. But the direction of the prevailing winds meant that these gases tended to blow specifically towards the poorer neighborhoods east of the refinery, predominantly inhabited by Iranian workers and their families. And this was something that residents and managers were well aware of at the time. So for example, in the summer months, the winds blew in the opposite direction. And so the British residents actually left the city during this period to escape the pollution. The delayed effects of pollution, damaging bodies at incremental speeds, produced uncertainty about the extent of its existence but it was undeniably a daily reality. And we see this in the way that visitors talked about it when they went to Abadan. So for example, when the famous intellectual Jalal al-Ahmad went to Abadan for the first time in 1943, he did not see the city, but he could smell it from the boat that he was traveling on. And he characterized the odor as rotten turnips and garlic sat right beneath the nose. Likewise, the writer Hassan Kamshad record that the harsh and pungent odor of the refinery's gases afflicted his sense of smell so much that he could never get used to it. The racialized harm to bodies extended into the refinery itself. Iranian workers who carried out maintenance work in the refinery were disproportionately exposed to occupational hazards compared to their British superiors. Former workers' accounts testify that work in the refinery's processing areas was highly dangerous due to the constant threat of fires, explosions, and gas leaks. This harm could also take the more incremental and less visible form. In September 1949, workers' representatives in the Works Factory Council reported a gas leak in the sulfur dioxide plant. Management dismissed their concerns and forced the staff to continue working there. But then in the months leading up to the announcement of oil nationalization in March 1951, workers in Abadan sent a petition to Majlis and to the Ministry of Justice complaining that they had become sick, maslul, as a result of poisoning gases like sulfur dioxide and also exposure to lead and acid. They said that as a result, they were now dying a slow death. They urged the government to intervene as the company's refusal to pay compensation for illness contravened the new Iranian labor law. Even the company's own investigation actually detected constant levels of sulfur dioxide that would result in serious health problems, and sometimes levels 
even high enough to pose an immediate threat to life. Yet in its commissioned reports, this was completely omitted. Its report was published in the British Journal of Industrial Medicine and concluded that there were no adverse health effects caused by exposure in the plants, attributing ill health instead to factors external to the refinery. In this regime of imperceptibility, as in the words of the historian of science, Michelle Murphy, workers lacked the technical instruments needed to prove that their ailments stem from the refinery itself, giving rise to toxic uncertainty that the company was able to exploit by externalizing workers' health problems as endemic to local society instead. The controversy reflected a more fundamental division between workers and management about the legitimacy of different forms of knowledge as a basis for oil expertise. Since 1946, the company had operated a disciplinary program to systematically inculcate safety consciousness. For instance, one former worker recalled that every day workers had to read a safety booklet, which they all had to have in their pockets. And this contained up to 47 regulations. The content of these guidelines was focused on accident prevention through eliminating so-called carelessness. Management consistently blamed accidents on workers in discipline based on long-standing assertions that Iranians lacked the capacities for acquiring scientific and technical knowledge compared to European and Indian employees. And this formed the basis for the company dismissing growing calls for Iranianization, which would mean the promotion of Iranians to more senior positions in the company. It also meant that management claimed to monopolize expertise through helping workers protect themselves. In framing safety expertise in terms of accident prevention, management claimed this could be calculated in advance and also from afar, communicated to workers didactically top down. This relegated the significance of in situ embodied knowledge on the ground that might help detect processual damage that might lead up to accidents. For example, smelling gas leaks that arise from corrosion. And this kind of knowledge could be communicated bottom up by workers. And in fact, this is what workers did. Despite management's safety regulations, workers regularly challenged management's claim to expertise by bringing up problems about inadequate safety provisions. Nevertheless, the company occluded such technical controversies on the ground in maintaining its exclusive claim to expertise as a set of abstract disembodied knowledge and used this as the basis for the ongoing marginalization of workers as political rather than technical actors. This also extended to the way the company projected its expertise to the wider public. So in its ex extensive PR machinery, it represented the refinery as a complex scientific domain, a black box where only the inputs and outputs were known. In various images, the refinery was depicted as a self-regulating objective system devoid of human subjectivity, concealing bodily damage within the system caused by toxic exposure. And this was especially how the company started representing the refinery to the Tehran press. Amidst growing scrutiny following the 1946 general strike, which halted its entire operations, the company aimed to allay fears about its colonial intentions while demonstrating the indis indispensability of its expertise to the Iranian nation. 
newspapers were important because they'd helped create a space for Tehran's middle class to discuss national development, especially in the context of heightened territorial anxiety in the 1940s. And as uh, Cyril Shayak shows, Western science and technology occupied a central place in these debates. So starting from spring 1947, IOC invited uh, journalists from Tehran on guided tours of the oil installations, especially the Abadan refinery. And these tours included famous figures such as Ebrahim Golestan, Khalil Malaki, Mohammed Masoud, and Abbas Khalili. On these tours, the company took visitors to the main processing plants and emphasized the gargantuan nature, and at the same time marginalized or omitted the contribution of manual labor to the functioning of the refinery, reinforcing the effect of the refinery as this self-regulating automated system. In subsequent reports, these journalists then reproduced this image of the refinery, praising the installations as the most modern in the world and a source for emulation. In contrast, they criticized the living conditions in the town and blamed this on the company. So what was happening was that they were distinguishing between the apolitical nature of the refinery and then the quasi-colonial enclave around it. Notably absent in these accounts were reports of pollution emanating from the refinery. And some articles even praised, uh, well, they expressed awe at the sight of smoke coming out of these tall smokestacks. These messages were important in shaping the emerging nationalization movement, simultaneously fueling growing opposition to the company at the same time as reinforcing the legitimacy of its expertise. Many publications of the emerging pro-nationalization coalition, the Jebhemeli, the National Front, delineated between IOC's technical accomplishments and its politics. For instance, even the agitational and anti-imperialist newspaper Shahed admitted that despite its disgust for IOC, quote, the administrative and technical organizations of the company are among the most perfect in the world, end quote. So the point was to gain access to IOC's expertise rather than to reformulate its content. While these pro-nationalization newspapers did feature complaints of workers in Abadan about poor living and labor conditions throughout 1950 and early 51, they did not acknowledge their expertise in any way, thereby rendering them as political and non-technical actors, much like the oil company had done. Indeed, the National Front often expressed an ambivalent attitude towards the workers, even condemning the general strike in April 1951 for fear that it would damage the installations. And these dynamics really came to a head when the Majlis Mixed Oil Committee investigated exactly how nationalization could be implemented. This was in early 1951. So Mossad who was then chair of the committee, drafted a questionnaire inquiring into the feasibility of nationalization. And this questionnaire explicitly separated technical considerations from political ones. He sent this to engineers who had not even visited Abadan instead of those who had worked there for many years. Significantly, despite the oil workers' petition about toxic exposure, which had recently been submitted, no mention was made about pollution or toxicity in the questionnaire. In response, the engineers advised that nationalization would not be possible without retaining IOC's existing foreign experts, especially in refining. Hence, as the newly established National Iranian Oil Company, NIOC, 
took over operations in June 51, the foundations were set for the continuation of IOX practices, even as the company itself was expelled. Although Mossadegh did evict IOX British staff in September, the National Iranian Oil Company maintained the existing employment structure, training schemes, and crucially the safety policies in the two years leading up to the 1953 coup, which ultimately allowed for the reintroduction of multinational oil companies the following year. Fundamentally then, the Iranian government reproduced the expertise of the very oil company it expelled, acting on the premise that oil expertise was exclusively an apolitical, standardized set of knowledge that could be applied regardless of local particularities and crucially, regardless of the embodied knowledge of workers. So just to wrap up, I think the history of how this comes about can provide three main lessons for environmental politics today. So first we see the role of imperialism in spreading pollution. And this seems quite obvious when looking at the material construction of these oil infrastructures, these polluting oil infrastructures, which still operate today. But it was also in the role of the company in concealing this pollution through erasing workers' bodies in the technical system. And this laid the foundations for the reproduction of epistemologies in which the environment was this external domain to be exploited rather than something entangled with human bodies. So when we're thinking about environmental politics today, it needs to factor in this historical culpability and the active work done to erase it. Second, it points to the importance of including so-called lay actors in environmental policymaking today. This is because toxic exposure in the Abadan refinery was detected through embodied situated knowledge rather than from some calculation from afar. So we should expand the scope of knowledge that we deem to be a legitimate basis for environmental expertise. Any environmental expertise that's based exclusively on abstract knowledge of macro level processes runs the risk of overlooking the unequal distribution of environmental hazards on the local level. And finally, I think that this history indicates that environmentalism cannot be detached from wider issues of social justice. Workers in Abadan did not articulate an environmentalism per se, but rather situated an environmental issue within wider issues of workers' rights and infrastructural inequality. And in this way, I think they expressed what Ramachandra Guha has called an environmentalism of the poor, which does not treat the environment as a discrete domain, but instead as intertwined with questions of survival and lived human experience. Any environmentalism that delineates between environmental and political issues runs the risk of, of reproducing this view of the environment as this external entity to be calculated, to be managed, and ultimately to be utilized rather than as something we have any ethical obligation towards. So I will leave that, uh, leave that there and um, thank you for listening. I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much for that talk, Martin. You have a huge amount of information and theoretical perspective here. I have a, a question of my own, but perhaps we'll begin with a question from Dr. Abdul Razak in the audience. Thank you, Martine. Uh, she said, I was wondering if you can comment on the two Dalet trade unions, whether they had any interest in environmental issues in Abadan. And this is actually something that I also wanted to ask you about 
a slightly different angle because I know by the time of the war, the Second World War, British trade unions and the British Labour Party were beginning to be a little bit concerned about the oil company's treatment of its workers in Iran. And I wondered if you'd had any, if you found any evidence of contacts between Iranian trade unions and British trade, trade unions about generally living conditions. And obviously the way you, you pose the issue of the kind of embeddedness of environmental issues within, within the bigger picture is quite interesting. But I, I, I think there were one or two reports, maybe towards the end of the war, about dissatisfaction on the part of, of, of Brits about conditions. So I wonder if, if you found that. Uh, yes, thank you very much. And I think the first time I actually came across this issue of sulfur dioxide uh, or sort of toxic exposure in the refinery was actually in, um, it was sort of passing reference was made to it in a, a parliamentary commission that was sent to Abadan to investigate labor conditions. Uh, and this was from the labor governments. And basically after the 1946 strike, the British government was, was trying to investigate and, and put pressure on the company to reform its labor policy. And they picked up on this issue of there being exposure to sulfur dioxide. And I think that this, we can kind of see this within the context of growing awareness of toxic exposure in the West in the 1940s. We really see in the trade union movement and in uh, you know, the labor movement more generally that there's this growing awareness of the need to control pollution in, in industrial workplaces. So it's not framed as such as like an environmental issue, but more um, a, a labor issue, really. So, I, yeah, I, I, in terms of direct correspondence between trade unions in Britain and, and the Tudor party, I didn't necessarily see that, but certainly I think you can situate this within a global moment in which toxic exposure becomes a more central labor issue. And in fact, this is reflected in the Iranian labor law, which is drafted in 1946. And this kind of puts, it actually makes industrial hygiene like a, a central issue as well. I should say, if people have questions, could they put them through the Q&A function? Because that's the only way I can access them. I noticed that there was someone who had a hand up, but we can't actually allow people to put their own questions directly. So if you could use the Q&A function, that would be quite helpful. So Martin, your very carefully modulated presentation actually conceals quite a damning indictment of the National Front and Mossadegh in particular, which you didn't really expand upon. I wonder, have you had any pushback on this question because people don't like to see their idols uh, criticised in this way? And it, it's quite a serious criticism. So that's one thing, and allied to that is is it too strong to say that the oil nationalisation made no difference to the workers? Or is that, is that extrapolating a bit too, too much? Well, firstly, I, of course, I'm anticipating there will be pushback. And I think it, we need to, I, I think that it's important to acknowledge the systematic efforts to prevent nationalisation from really happening on the ground. So, you know, when oil was, was nationalised, there was a British blockade, there was 
a systematic effort to deny spare parts from entering Abadan. And so it made, it, yeah, so in that sense, I, I, I am sympathetic. In terms of did it, did it actually make much difference? I think that, that, again, it comes back to this question, were they allowed to enact much difference? But certainly workers at the time, they did see the relevance of the National Front and Mossadegh. So they did actually sense this opportunity to finally realise a lot of the aspirations for promotion, for better living and labour conditions. And they saw that they, they situated their struggle as part of this sort of wider anti-imperialist moment mm. in which they could redress these grievances that they'd held for for many years so I don't think it's yeah in that sense I don't in terms of political consciousness I see it as being very significant the National Front Mossadegh the National Front was very important in terms of political subjectivity whether or not it's translated into improved living and labour conditions on the ground I think that's more open for debate yeah mm-hmm. Thank you. Okay, so uh, we have a question from Frank Demoni, and he says, typically I would expect differential health records to exist in cities due to pollution. I would expect to see raised cancer, respiratory and other bad effects downwind of sources of pollution. Part of smart city design includes monitoring and cross-referencing to health records. Do such records exist in Abadan or other Iranian cities? And there's a follow-up question, which I'll I'll give to you at the same time. In the case of the Bhopal disaster, there was never a liability trail back to the parent company in the US. Is there in international law any redress to Iranian citizens harmed by the pollution from a refinery? Well, yeah, thank you very much for that question. What we see is that in terms of systematic records, it's very difficult to come by. There was no kind of systematic, systematic monitoring. And in fact, I think this, this is a wider methodological problem in doing environmental history is being able to t- kind of historically measure things like pollution. And I think this, it doesn't really become recorded until, in Iran until much later, until the 60s, when pollution starts entering the sort of political consciousness in Tehran. What we do see in Abadan is a very sort of localized investigation, which was conducted by the company. So the company commissioned this report after these complaints were made by the workers. And the reports did actually show that there was increased rates of cancer, well, not cancer, but respiratory diseases, bronchitis, tuberculosis. And so in this kind of local small scale report, we do see there is kind of some kind of correlation between exposure and ill health. And yeah, your second question, is there in, in international any, any redress to Iranian citizens harmed by the pollution for the refinery? As far as I, I know, not. Um, and this, this is the thing that actually the, the, the oil company, when it published this report, when it did this investigation, there were already international standards agreed upon about acceptable levels of of exposure to gases like sulfur dioxide. And this was being done in the US and Europe. So there was already some kind of regulation. And the company knew this, they were well aware of it, but still contravened these standards. So in other words, they were meeting standards where, where it was harder to contravene them. 
But in a place like Abadan, they they were able to kind of circumvent these standards. Yeah. Okay. Can you tell us whether you think the Islamic Republic has got a better record in this, this kind of area or not? Is uh, it it's, it's, I mean, certainly we see that there, there have been quite a few air pollution measures during the time of Islamic Republic. For example, you know, focusing especially on driving cars, for example, alternating number plates. Uh, you can only drive a car that ends with this number plate one day and so on. It's difficult to, it's difficult to really uh, say whether this is because of something particular in this Islamic Republic or more a reflection of globally there being increasing awareness of air pollution. Because even in, you know, like the US and, and Europe, even though there was awareness of air pollution and its dangers, you know, going back to the 19th century, we don't really see a systematic effort to regulate it or, or control it until the 60s and 70s. So it's difficult to know. Yeah, it's difficult to say, is it to give credit or, or <laughs> if you know what I mean? Uh, but also, I mean, we, we certainly see, for example, this instance of toxic exposure. Uh, this is an ongoing issue. I mean, we've seen for example, major gas leaks recent in recent years mm. in petrochemical complexes. Mm. We also see that the, the workers, the major oil workers strike this year, well, one of the main grievances was over working condition safety, essentially, mm. and hazards. So of course it's not it's not like it's it's yeah, it's still there's still continuities there. Your picture of the Karun River was quite shocking. Um, I hadn't mm. seen that before. It's quite ironic that you have a province with no water and so much oil. And I wondered to what extent, did, were you able to find anything out about the recent political turmoil that we know there was in Khuzestan over water issues? Is this impossible to investigate or have you been able to work out what was going on here? I mean, it's not my. <laughs> it's not my area of expertise, <laughs> but certainly, I mean, I know a lot of people are, have been writing about this and, of course, environmental activism or, you know, the grassroots environmental activism in Iran drawing attention to this. We can obviously see that there's a combination of macro level factors to do with climate change, but also lo more local level issues to do with mismanagement, diversion of water extraction from groundwater sources so it, it's definitely this, this combination but as far as the exact details I, I can't I can't say okay I can encourage anyone who has a question to put it through the Q&A before we have to close I'd like to take you back to the bigger picture if we can can you give us, I think Iranian studies is not something where, which has a long record of research in environmental humanities. What do you think Iranian studies can bring to the table regarding environmental studies more generally? Yeah, I mean, I actually, I think that the, in general, the environmental humanities, energy humanities are very burgeoning fields, but they are still dominated by a Eurocentricism there's still a big focus on the global north. Of course, there are some like, for example, there's a lot of work being done in South Asian studies, 
Latin American studies in environmental humanities, but still the Middle East and Iranian studies less so. And I think that given that Iran is one of the major oil producers, I think this is a major problem because it means that we hardly know anything about, in terms of through the environmental humanities lens, about a region that is actually centrally responsible for this global environmental crisis. And this is, I think, reflected in a lot of the major environmental histories completely erasing or brushing over lived experiences of environmental crises in the region. So, for example, some of the major histories of um, pollution in the 20th century, they actually make these big claims that oil production in the region happens in these remote settings, in these deserts, far away from any communities, completely overlooking the fact that there are these huge populations living in the vicinity of these oil installations. So I think that's, that's a major problem. And of course, Iran is a very, you know, diverse country ecologically. Um, there's a rich tradition of environmental activism in the country. I think that environmental humanities would gain a lot from kind of the, the insights uh, in, in challenging these kind of Eurocentric views of environment and also these diffusionist narratives, because you also see that there's this prevailing narrative that environmentalism spread from the West and then to the rest of the world, especially Rachel Carson's famous book, The Silent Spring. Um, after that, it's supposedly then the rest of the world gets inspired. And this completely overlooks kind of the local indigenous traditions that were already in existence. Yeah. Thank you. Well, we have a couple of questions. One from Fariba. Well, it's not a question, it's a comment, uh, which I'll summarise, which she says the attitude of the British was very much the same towards their own people, which I think is, is probably the case. Um, but it might be quite interesting to have some comparative study with other oil producing areas such as Venezuela to see how they dealt with similar issues arising. And we have a comment from Manal Shahabi. Thank you for your excellent talk. She agrees with your last comment that we don't know enough about oil producers. But we should also note that the record of the Islamic Republic, the use of the energy subsidies over the years has contributed to some of the world's highest energy use Mm -hmm. and per capita emissions levels. So I don't know if you agree with us. Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much for raising that point. And I don't mean to, when I'm talking about the historical probability of the global north, that's not to let countries like Iran off the hook. And we know Iran is one of the world's great emitters as well. So Mm -hmm. thank you. Thank you for raising that. And we see that also... Iran's involvement in COP26 isn't, hasn't been that pivotal either. Again, I will ask another question and then see if we have any last questions from the audience. Is this an environmental history that you've written, Mateen? Is it a social history? Is it a political history? How would you locate yourself in terms of academic work more broadly? Well, I, I mean, I embarked on the project you know knowing nothing about environmental history and it's very much it was through a labor history lens a social history lens and it's it's through this specific these industrial issues over toxic exposure that then led me to trying to link this to an environmental history as well and I think that that's 
part of the problem is in kind of treating environmental history when environmental history is this kind of discrete subfield that isn't connected to social political history etc which the best environmental histories are not like that i don't mean to mischaracterize it but that that's exactly part of the problem is when we divide environmental issues from social and political ones and for me uh environment is completely in in this history that i've looked at environment is completely intertwined with issues of social justice in terms of you know who experiences the adverse effects of pollution is intricately linked with questions of class gender race with questions of power and yeah so in in that way i kind of see there being a natural compatibility and ultimately i mean i see both as being quite critical projects social history environmental history they're both ultimately about critiquing power structures ultimately they they kind of both arose out of the, the the new left and the writing history from below and in that sense they also have quite similar methodological issues in terms of what's erased from the archive and you know trying forcing yourself to find alternative sources like oral histories traditions etc but the archives of the oil company are a pretty good resource in terms of reading against the grain and extracting material from them i mean i think you can find quite a lot there to produce a counter narrative to what the company was saying itself when you look at the archives it's a different story yes yeah that's very true actually and even like the bp archive for example you, you have to you'll find you know environmental issues or problems only come up incidentally like it'll be in a miscellaneous folder mm. or an industrial relations folder mm. yeah and and likewise you know these for example you have to then you have to you know measure them against sort archival sources from like the iranian archives mm. um you know that petition for sent from the workers was mm. from iran mm. It's quite interesting that in this this age that you're looking at, when the Tudor and its trade unions were quite important, but workers are still using this very old-fashioned traditional method of addressing petitions to powerful yeah. institutions. You know, so they they carry on. I mean, this is again, it's it's an indigenous tradition which is often overlooked. This is how people made their protests in this case. Absolutely. Uh, there's a couple more questions which will probably take us to the end of our time. From Frank Dumani again. Yeah. Won't plant samples, trees, etc., give a history of pollution in their cause? It is where I would be looking. So that's one one rather rather technical question. In fact, we have two more comments. Um, a question, Manal. She's saying, indeed, Iran and other oil producers don't have the largest emissions levels globally, while the industrial nations are historically responsible for climate change. And on that, Iran promised in its submissions to the UNFCCC to reduce 12% of emissions, but the cost to do that is very large, constrained by sanctions, and was made dependent on financial support from abroad. Does Martin have any insights from his historical studies on what can be done domestically to improve the effects on the environment. Mm-hmm. And the final comment, as a general comment, Fariba would say that British and Americans do have particularly strong imperialistic attitudes. She used to work for NIOC, 
in the late 1970s. And at that time, there was an effort of which I was a part to break away from the influence and control of Nyok in the South, which as mm. I think is now well known, but weakened post-73 when the Shah discovered that the consortium Nyok had a secret deal under the table, which in effect dictated how Iran's economy could operate. So I'll, I'll leave you to, to deal with those. I'm sorry to fire them all at you at once. Reaching the end of our time. Yes, so thank you, um, Frank, for mentioning the, the tree samples. And this is one of the things that environmental history has to do is, is kind of bridge with the natural sciences and use things like tree samples, ice cores to kind of show this historical record. So it's an inherently an interdisciplinary project. Manal, thank you for raising that point. And also, yeah, of course. The, it's not even like a historical probability. The global north is still predominantly contributes to global emissions. And, and it's actually, the, of course, the transition to green technologies, the global north is, has pledged to provide that money, 100 billion per year, and it's still unable to do that. So that's, that's the failing. And then insight from historical studies on what can be done domestically to improve the effects on the environment. That's perhaps where I'm going next in my in the direction in terms of thinking more broadly about history of environmental policy in Iran I'm at the early stages of, of that. Thank you very much for your comment Fariba and, and John about the imperialist attitude of the, the oil company and I, I mean that's something that that's the thing that it kind of continues throughout the 50s 60s we see this kind of that Abadan is still kind of this foreign enclave. But with that, it's kind of, <laughs> there's a lot of nostalgia about it as well as this very mm-hmm. cosmopolitan place, which, uh, you know, the most, still the, you know, the most modern city in Iran. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, not today, but at the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think we've reached the end of our session. Thank you very much, Martine. That was extremely informative. And I I hope you don't mind the grilling that we gave you (laughs) with some of the questions. But it's it's obviously it's an immensely important subject. And I very much look forward to seeing your future work. So thank you very much. Thank you very, very much for having me here. And it's a pleasure. Okay, and we'll see you when your book comes out and you can tell us. Hopefully, yes. Yes. Thank you very much. All right, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.